0: Objects. <laughs> 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 Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to begin today's podcast with a huge thank you to Max K., Derek J., and Tor L., who made uh, very generous donations to help offset the expenses of these podcasts. Max, Derek, and Tor, I really appreciate your help. Thanks a lot, you guys, and uh, I hope you enjoy today's program, which uh, I'm thinking of as Tim Leary with a twist, which uh, you'll understand better after we hear today's talk. Lately, I've been uh, spot-checking various recordings from the Timothy Leary Archive, uh, which were sent to me, by the way, from the Futique Trust, who provided these materials under the same Creative Commons license that I use here in the Salon. And I also want to acknowledge the fact that uh, it was actually through the good graces of our friend Bruce Damer that these recordings actually made their way to me. You've heard uh, Bruce on several podcasts here, but what you should also know is that uh, Bruce is the person most instrumental for me being able to use all, all of this uh, wonderful Leary material, and uh, he's also the person who secured the use of the trialogue recordings from Ralph Abraham. I don't mention his name very often, but I do want you to know what an important role Bruce Damer continues to play here in our Salon. Anyway, I've uh, been trying to find some good examples of Dr. Leary's thinking about psychedelic substances and uh, that have also have a good sound quality. Eventually, I plan on getting all of these recordings podcast, but for now, I want to first give you a sampling of the wide range of his thinking. So, instead of one of his more esoteric talks, today I'm going to continue my little mini-history lesson about the cultural transformation that took place as the mind-numbing 50s were replaced by a less rigid frame of mind. Actually, uh, the talk we're about to hear was recorded in late March of 1987 at a conference titled, The Sixties, Leaders and Legacies. And Dr. Leary's talk was titled, and uh, it really isn't fully clear uh, which was the official title, but it was either the Cyber Society or the Counterculture. And uh, let me get one of my pet peeves out of the way here. I refuse to let those screwheads in our nation's capitals call us the Counterculture. We are the culture, the human culture. They're the ones who are bucking the trends of humanity with their counterculture of fast food and conspicuous consumption. Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) But I just think it's about time we take back our sense of place in human society. Actually, I didn't mean to sound so angry just now. Uh, The truth is I really get a kick out of laying that rap on my Republican friends. And uh, it can be a a real mind-opener for these conservatives to uh, begin to see that they aren't really in the majority anymore. Uh, They really are the counterculture, and you can almost see their heads beginning to explode when the truth hits them. Uh, For most of them, uh, such an aha moment can maybe be their first psychedelic experience. And on the natch at that. Uh, Now, how did I get so far off track? All I uh, intended to say just now was that we're about to hear another talk that is more about the journey we've taken to get to this place in time than it is about uh, lessons learned on a deep psychedelic journey. In a way, uh, I think it's always good to pause once in a while and take a look back to see whether or not we've been traveling down the right road and if we're actually going forward. Now, please uh, keep in mind that this talk was given over 20 years ago. You know, back in the day when Pac-Man and Centipede were the hot games. Back before the iPod. Back even before Tim Berners-Lee came up with his idea for the World Wide Web. You know, a a lot has taken place since this talk was given. So now let's join the famous and uh, infamous Abby Hoffman as he introduces Dr. Timothy Leary for a Sunday morning talk on March twenty second, 1987, which uh, makes it almost exactly 21 years ago that this talk was originally given. Oh, and I better warn you, uh, there are a few places where Timothy gets really excited and pounds his fist on the podium. Uh, not only is it a little disconcerting if you're listening to this on your headphones, but it also uh, jiggled the microphone contact and uh, adds some static to the pounding. And it's, uh, it's really a nice effect once you get used to it. <laughs> and I might as well uh, also let you know uh, right now that this tape came to quite a sudden and very unexpected end. And uh, so far, I haven't been able to locate the rest of it. Uh, and actually, uh, you might even find some kind of a strange significance in the abrupt ending. Now, how's that for a teaser? Okay, I'll be quiet now. Let's join Abby Hoffman.
1: In the, in the post-60s world of uh, holistic medicine at a time when we uh, talk about self-help and ancient herbal remedies and spiritual healing and things like this, one of our local institutions that seems to typify the exact opposite of it is the Kaiser medical facilities that proliferate around here. Our next speaker, and this may be hard for you to believe, was a director of psychological research at the Kaiser Foundation Hospital in Oakland. For something like 16 years, I'm talking, of course, about Timothy Leary, who went on from Kaiser to Harvard University where he began experimenting with things like the sacred mushroom and LSD at the Center for Personality Research, and uh, for which he was uh, bounced from Harvard in 1963. Fortunately, he did not go back to Kaiser. (laughs) Timothy Leary has written widely about his experiences. The best place to start, if you don't know much about it, I would recommend his autobiography, a book called Flashbacks that was published a few years ago by Torture Books. It's a very good book. And I'm always struck when I look at that book at the enthusiasm, the passion that underlay the early research in um, mind-changing drugs. It's the same kind of enthusiasm and scientific adventure that you find when you read Watson's book, The Double Helix, about scientific research on DNA. There's a tremendous enthusiasm, and belief in possibilities. Of course, the rest of the world didn't see things like that and uh, for his troubles and research and various experiments and outrageous behavior, Timothy Leary was bounced around this country in a lot of directions, including prison, from which he escaped at one point, went off to Europe, hit out with Eldridge Cleaver in uh, Algeria for a while, and eventually returned to America and uh, made good. He's today the president of a computer software company called Futique, which is the opposite of Antique, you may have guessed. Does the counterculture live? How so? Let me introduce to you Timothy Leary.
2: Thank you. I was happy to be back in Bay Area. As uh, we learned this morning, I spent many a year in this area, considered home. Well, we're looking back and forward today. I must say, a lot of things have changed. (laughs) (coughs) A lot of things have changed. uh, But one thing hasn't changed, and that is my... uh, Basic bumper sticker, my basic t shirt, my basic compass reading. It remains the same. It can be summarized in the five wonderful American red, white, and blue words T F Y Q A. Think for yourself and question authority. And it is my, uh, my pleasure and my obligation today to kind to of give you to encourage you and possibly uh, help empower you to think for yourself because uh, thinking for yourself is not only the greatest thrill that can come to a member of our species, Homo sapiens sapiens, but uh, it's also kind of risky. As you well know, there are many institutions uh, that go back thousands of years and are apparently stronger today than ever that are totally dedicated to the proposition that human beings, individuals are not supposed to think for themselves. Now, um, I wanted to uh, raise a basic question came up in my mind, and I bet it came up in your mind too. Uh, I'm not being cosmic uh, when I say, uh, why are we here (laughs) today? (laughs) Um, Now the more cynical will say, I think of all the C reasons, uh, that we're here for cash. Well, that's not really true, because I want you to know that all the speakers that came here are, most of them, of course all of them, are getting half, maybe a third, maybe a fifth of what they would ordinarily command if they talk to uh, the public out the rest of the country. So there's something special about San Francisco that brought Dr. Benjamin Spock up from uh, St. Thomas and the rest of us from around the world. Um, I think one of the reasons for me, and maybe for many of you, is... Just plain, good, old-fashioned curiosity to see um, how we've all changed uh, in the last few years. I debated Abby Hoffman twice in the last two weeks, once with Hunter Thompson. That's a thrill and a half. (laughs) Hunter hasn't changed. (laughs) We debated Eldridge Cleaver in Toronto. Eldridge is saying got to be militant, you got to be tough, you got to have everyone in uniform, you got to fight the enemy, the enemy's going to like this and that. Uh, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. He was saying the same thing today he was saying 15 years ago, except then it was the good guys were Marxist-Leninism and the bad guys were the Republicans. And now, Elder's well, a Republican Christian, but still the same old message, so he hasn't changed. Uh, of course, Abby hasn't changed, thank God. He... Uh, uh, the more I see of Abby uh, I've seen him often in the last 20 years I, I'm just grateful to have uh, been around at a time when he's uh, been around he's been an unfailing beacon source of energy and wit and sharp uh, crusading zeal now I, I disagree with Abby about 1% of the time 99% of the time we're, we've got the same enemies out there Thrust so solutions are concerned naturally his solutions are different from mine but uh, it's always a great pleasure to be around, uh, around uh, Abby. I think I should mention uh, something about um, Harry Edwards. Uh, as you probably know, there was some sort of uh, misunderstanding yesterday, and uh, Mr. Edwards did not speak at this at this uh, group. I don't pretend to know anything about the, uh, the rights and wrongs of the situation, but I do want to to honor uh, what Harry Edwards has done in the past. That time in 1968 in uh, in uh, Mexico City when uh, It was Tommy Smith and uh, those uh, two young American individuals stood up there and uh, told the world that uh, they were unhappy with what's going on. Uh, uh, That goes down in history. My book is one of the great examples of individual, peaceful, dramatic, uh, cybernetic uh, signal-sending. And, you know of all places, the Olympic Games, folks. Oh, geez. They're supposed to be carnivals and celebrations of nationalism, huh? And have individuals get up and express their opinion. Oh my God, we've got to stop that sort of stuff. Uh, I I don't know what the issue was yesterday. Uh, uh, I feel that um, many changes taking place in America in the last 20 years but certainly uh, our record on race relations is abysmal and uh, deplorable and uh, disgraceful. And uh, I think that uh, if in any way his action yesterday would remind us that, uh, oh, we hadn't even begun. in that issue, uh, I-, I thank him for that. <laughs> now, the um, <laughs> the title of my talk, at least as I have it in my mind, is as follows. Got it? You are ready? I'm going to be talking about the cyber society. Colon. The popularization and personalization of high-knowledge technology in the roaring 20th century. Okay? I'll run it through one more time. I start with roaring 20th century. Well, listen, folks. I'm 60, 66 years old. I've been around seven decades... So for me, all this talk about the 60s decade and the 50s and the 80s, come on, that's kiddie stuff, I mean. Let's back up a little and get the perspective of centuries. You know, then you get to see that these, uh, these decades are little waves, they're little ripples, and something that the pattern emerges maybe over eight or nine or ten or twelve of these decades, particularly fast-moving decades like the ones we've been through in the roaring 20th century. So from this uh, panoramic viewpoint, I can tell you that uh, the 20th century was roaring... It's taken us in seven or eight, three decades from a, a civilization of robot assembly worker, uh, Newtonian factory people, into what's the beginning of, you know, the new thing you call it the information age, communication age, a golden age of psychology, the age of individual cyberpunk, cybernut, millions of names. We don't even have the right names yet, but we all know that's happening. And um, it's been my pleasure in the last uh, 66 years to have surfed almost every one of these wonderful decade waves. Um. Now, it all began in my viewpoint very conveniently around the turn of the century. We always, we know that typically the real changes in human nature, the changes in human politics and economics and society are brought about by two things, by, um, by people who have a a map, or a vision, or a model of where we're going to go. These are the philosophers, and then the technicians, the people that get together, the uh, the printing presses, or the compasses, or the uh, the high technology that can take us where we want to go. At the turn of the century, we had some magnificent philosophic uh, navigators peering into the future. Uh, Einstein. Einstein, of course, and again, Einstein probably didn't say this, but it's what we think Einstein said. And what a lot of people are afraid Einstein said when he talked about relativity, that in order to understand yourself, you have to understand the other point of view, the other perspective, and that uh, my velocity and location can be determined only in terms of someone else. I mean, that is heavy-duty stuff, and all the monotheisms and the fundamentalist uh, uh, religions, philosophy, couldn't handle that. You know that in 1930, when Einstein came to America... He was considered as, uh, as far out as a, as a crack dealer. Really, really, the bishops and priests uh, would say relativity, they sensed that, that Einstein had somehow let loose all the solidities and the stabilities. The idea of relativity, they knew, as Jerry Falwell knows today, that cultural relativity or ethical relativity, you're determining the right and wrongness of the situation depends upon the other situation. Hey, that's something that the boys cannot let happen. So Einstein deserves a great deal of credit for stirring things up. <laughs> but that was nothing. Max Planck and the uh, quantum physicists said, sorry, Newton, all these uh, theories about a heavy-duty material world of force and momentum and energy and work and all those Bank of London heavy-duty conservative energy concepts. That works in the narrow, narrow range. But listen, uh, Isaac... Uh, the basic elements of reality from galaxies to quarks are clusters and probability waves of off-on things called quanta or bits or bytes or yin-yang. Whoa! In In other words, uh, now was that scary? Talk about a bad acid trip the poor Farmer Brown or the poor guy in the the turn of the century and his wife are trying to get together and deal some solid word and suddenly Einstein says it's all relative and the quantum physicist says hey, every place you put your fingers, it's, uh, you know, that's unsettling. And then Heisenberg came along and did the most incredible, incredible uh, thing. He said, uh, you never know anything about going out there except as you determine it by your uh, technology, by your instruments and by your thoughts and by your perception." So, uh, in other words, it's a very... Uh, <laughs> Heisenberg taught us to take the universe very personally, in both sense of the word. Now, if that's true, that if my reality is determined by my uh, technology, there's a drop of blood, and I, you, I eyeball it, and you look at it with the microscope, and you look at the electron, mic, we've got three different versions of reality, hey, oh, poor Farmer Brown, he's got a headache. <laughs> How could he possibly become comfortable and happy And uh, enjoy life in a world made up of changing relative parts of clusters of on off things, and where you make up your own mind about it. Hey. Well, the physicists were no help at all. Those guys are running around with the technology and knowledge technology that was Paleolithic. They were on the cave walls, they were using chalk. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? Suppose uh, Einstein had uh, Pac Man, or uh, Niels Bohr had, you know, one of these. centipede games where moving things around the screen. Anyway, they didn't. So, the man and woman in the street, you know, heard these guys uh, make these, uh, you know, formula, made no sense. So who? Who's going to prepare a civilization of uh, factory workers and farmers and people that haven't even got the Model T Ford yet? Who's going to prepare them for an Einsteinian relativistic quantum physical uh, ever-changing probabilistic universe. Who? Well, you know, who you can count on at every time in human history when we had to make a big philosophic lurch forward. Who who always came to the front, saved the day and showed us and made us feel happy and comfortable with the new future? I'm talking about those friends of ours that have always been around. We needed them. The musicians and the artists and the poets and the writers and the bards and the performers and the storytellers and, you know, the minstrels, the, the rock and rollers. right. Ah, the actors are, uh, the script writers, sure. The whole 20th century, to me, is the story of how artists and writers, uh, uh, prepared us to be comfortable in a, um, in a quantum physical world. For example, just the turn of the century, the artists took Newtonian reality and they totally demolished it. The the, uh, expressionists, you know, the impressionists, just, just panes of light coming out, hitting your eyeball. It's television really and then uh, the uh, the Puente-less, you know was literally painting in in dots of uh, of uh, like your amiga computer pixels uh, the uh, the um, surrealists the um, the dada people uh, uh, for 20 30 40 uh, years all these artists were Telling Farmer Brown, hey, it's not what you see there, it's not what you touch, but, and uh, gradually then the, then the commercial people took it over, and the advertising people pretty it so. Pretty soon, we're all fairly comfortable living in a Salvador Dali world where watches go over the end and cubism are solved. Yeah, hey, big step forward. We owe a great, great debt to certain. Um, uh, audio physicists who came up to Mississippi they were of Afro-American descent and taught us how to demolish the old musical standards I'm talking about the, the black jazz musicians that uh, really blew the old 19th century in the 19th century you, it was all factory music you had Beethoven you had 17 uh, violins and you had 9 cellos over here and occasionally a soloist could do the prescribed you know individual stuff but the jazz musicians got up there and they taught us improvisation and syncopation and uh, innovation. And you never heard the same thing. And not only was I encouraged to innovate and improvise, but you were going to be listening to me and I'd lay off back and then you take over and improvise. So pretty soon, you saw just one of us improvising, there are three, four, five, eight of us improvising. Now we're talking, Marshall McLuhan talk when we do that. Then the, uh, oh, the writers... About James Joyce and most of the poetry of the 20th century is again breaking the word line, breaking the grammatical line. Uh, radio was a great help, radio was fabulous about 1920s and 30s when Farber Brown and his wife could turn the dial of that little box and suddenly mystical, magical waves come in and they could hear Amos and Andy that was very comforting or Lowell Thomas every every evening, or believe it or not, Farber Brown. Could watch the king of he'd listen to the king of England uh, renouncing his throne for the woman he loved, or they could hear Hitler Nuremberg, <coughs> That really made it live. Where they could they could hear Franklin D. Roosevelt declaring World War uh, Two was it? Yeah, yeah. That was that was not the Sony War, was it? No, that was the Pearl Harbor War. Kind of keep it straight here. All uh, oh, right, then of course screens, the old. Uh, the old uh, black-and-white films. That was amazing, you know. It was amazing. Once you got going, you wouldn't predict it, but Farmer Brown and Mrs. Brown actually accepted the reality of jerry little figures on a screen. Indeed, those realities of Clara Bow and Clark Gable were more real than the people that they lived with. Interesting sign. The culture's getting softened up to uh, to see things in a uh, in a screen, uh, quantum, physical, electronic way. Well, uh, um, World War II brought a sonar, radar, television, television, the baby boomers, by the time they were three or four years old, every day, with their little chubby hands turning the boob tube, <laughs> every day they experienced more data, more bits and bytes, more uh, information, more panoramas, more geography, more history, more hype, more bullshit, you name it, uh, in one day, they experienced more. They took in more data than the greatest Marco Polo's in history before. Uh, so we're dealing here with a new culture and civilization a new new species. I don't know. We're talking about a generation of people who, since the time they were born, have been inundated by data, electronic data. The, to, to the baby boomers and the, and the subsequent generations, electronic data is the ocean they swim in. It's the mother's milk they sucked in it. It's the stuff they peeped. in. They in their little plastic diapers. Data, data, data. They popped it, snorted it, snuffed it. They've been... Talk about a a new generation. Now, the baby boomers, of course, are interesting for many reasons. They dominated the last half of the 20th century. And I found it a great pleasure to be in this room yesterday and down at a bar in uh, San Francisco later on yesterday afternoon where I could really uh, talk to Dr. Benjamin Spock. I consider him to be uh, one of the most influential philosophers of all time. Now, he may not agree with that. You know, it's an interesting thing that sometimes people express things they're not aware of. It Maybe, maybe I don't know, I don't realize how important he's such a modest man. Uh, what he did was give us a Bible of the 21st century, the information age. You had to have Dr. Spock telling parents. See, that's the thing. He's not talking to high school kids. He's talking to parents. And that Bible was a common sense book of child and baby care. And he told parents, I was one of them, after World War II, we all walked around with this book. He'll deny it. He'll say he didn't say that in any, but I don't care what he actually said, what we thought he said. (laughs) Well, much more important, treat your kids as individuals. (gasps) Treat your kids as individuals, yeah. Uh... The the, cliché is demand feeding. You don't feed them when... In a a factory civilization, there can't be demand feeding. You can't feed people individually. You got a line up there and you got to put that screw in every time the hubcap comes along. You can say, Hey, Cheech, I'm going to eat. Get back there, Chong. You can't eat. What kind of eat, man? We have to eat at 12 when the bell rings. Well, I'm hungry now. Well, you can't... You got to eat when the bell rings in a factory civilization. But here comes Dr. Spock telling, Hey, feed them when they're hungry. Um basically, of course, everybody got down. On the poor doctor. He was blamed for the excesses of the '60s. <laughs> I was glad to have him get blamed, otherwise, I would have gotten blamed <laughs> but uh, uh what? <laughs> what's the opposite of that? <laughs> They did. What happened yesterday? They shut it down. Oh, you're the dread. Oh, you're the dread couple from Houston. Oh, my God. Let's make a deal, all right? You'll get three minutes, huh? Later on, you get three minutes, okay? One and a half each, okay? All right, okay. Think about (laughs) that. Well, (laughs) you're waking up, huh? (laughs) I'm a little sleepy myself. Sunday morning deals are kind of hard, aren't they? Anyone else got a comment or anything? (laughs) Okay. uh, We're talking about Benjamin Spock and uh, this uh, whole thing he did. Basically, you know, you could say that he started the Consumer Society. Now I know that left wing people and a lot of new age people think it's terrible about the materialistic consumer society, but you know, basically it's letting the individual decide what she or he wants and giving them a fair shot at getting it. I'm a I'm a great, great supporter of the consumer society. And by the way, I think Andy Warhol was an incredibly important American I want you know about Andy Warhol, huh? I'm not a great admirer of Rolling Stone magazine issue of Rolling Stone magazine has a wonderful article about, uh, about uh, Andy Warhol, really lays down some of the stuff that Andy was saying. See, Andy was your first television kid. Andy, you know, said, gee, gee, life is like a television show. Talk about soap operas. <laughs> Come on over to my place. <laughs> and Andy, you know, could never get uh, terribly involved because he was tape recording everything. And the better it got, the crazier it got around him, the better show he had taped. I mean, that's a powerful, powerful concept of human you know, lubrication, you know. Uh, when you think about it, Andy was suggesting that anybody, you can do it. You get a $30 tape recorder and a $40 Polaroid and you're in Andy World's business. You can record everything that happens to you. And all the, all the people that are giving you a bad time or a good time, you got all the, you know, the concept that, you're the director and producer and uh, photographer of your own life film, you know. But Andy would never say that because all Andy ever said was, "Great, <laughs> 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 great." <laughs> anyway, uh, Doctor Spock, um, you know, in a sense, was symbolizes the notion, you know, hey, Pepsi generation uh weydie's champion you're the you're the top go all the way you're entitled you're american hey don't settle for anything go go out there that that's heavy duty stuff to tell the children of a factory civilization that they can go and get the best but anyway that's what we thought he said now uh, the uh the whole thing was fine when we our parents were building um, primary schools or building high schools and colleges and selling the kids uh, hula hoops and all that but uh, the, the psychedelic pudding hit the fan in the 60s when uh, when the Spock kids hit high school and college and they wanted a gourmet education and they wanted connoisseur sex and they wanted a connoisseur selective uh, war or not war at Vietnam and they wanted, you know they wanted uh gourmet uh Drugs. I mean, gee, uh, we we said you you're the best. But we didn't realize that you guys would take us seriously. Actually, actually wanted. So uh, you know, uh, I don't think Benjamin Spock understood that. I didn't understand it, uh, and I don't put him down when I say he didn't understand what would happen when when uh, when um, children who've been treated as individuals suddenly hit uh, <laughs> hit, hit hit adolescence and uh, sexual blossoming and all that. Okay, uh, the uh, I've been talking to you about um, knowledge technology. Remember, I talked about uh, art, and I talked about uh, poetry, and I talked about uh, jazz, and I talked about uh, movies, and then I talked a little about computers, and then uh, of course, I mean, not about computers, but about uh, television. In 1976, though, the um, a real wave happened, and it was born not in a manger in Bethlehem. But in a garage in Silicon Valley, where St. Stephen I and St. Stephen II brought us the personal thought appliance, the home computer. And they called it Apple after the first member of our species, Homo sapiens, the first person to think for herself, of course, Eve in the Garden of Eden, who ate the unauthorized fruit. Uh, well, I've been involved in computer, uh, the computer adventure, the computer experience, uh, for about four years now. And uh, I was brought into it by a man named Buddy Diamond. Buddy, where's Buddy? Buddy is from St. Paul and he did the NFL Challenge. Anyway, Buddy picked me off of a plane and going from St. Paul to New York and said, you're going to have a career boy in software. He's a strong-minded man. Here I am. Uh, I've been involved in software for about four years now. And we're all very disappointed. We're all very disappointed in ourselves and the culture. Why? Because we know these personal computers, now the Amigas and the enhanced color and graphics, can put on your screen stuff better than you've seen it on the big movie screen. You can literally be the director or producer of your own films. I mean, there's simply no end to the thought classification and thought processing and changing. And yet it hasn't happened. Why? Why? Why don't we have, I've, I've got a, my wife Barbara is a very intelligent person, a very sophisticated person, and a 13-year-old boy who's very intelligent, sophisticated, neither one of them would look at a piece of software. Uh, they went through Pac-Man, they went through it five years ago, but they're going to play Pac-Man for the rest of their life. But, um, there is simply not no software for intelligent, college-educated, book-reading, movie-reading, uh, people who like to be I mean, Sure, they're word-processing and there's a, Counting sheets but I mean what is there that would really uh, take the place of a great book well when we tear our hair and say geez how have we failed you realize that this whole profession is only 11 years old see Wozniak and Jobs did, did, did they didn't invent it but they put it together and merchandised it in 1976 so we're only an 11 year old kid now I believe in re- recapitulation I believe on ontogeny repeats phylogeny I think cosmology repeats biology I think uh, <laughs> electronics uh, recapitulates uh, everything. We're only 11 years old. See, first we had uh, Pong, that was little baby stuff. And then we got Pac-Man, that's kind of baby stuff. And then we got, um, what was it, Donkey Kong, we're learning how to walk around. Then we got Donkey Kong Jr. We could swing like a primate, that's getting up there. When, um, when Activision, Infocom came out with a, a game called The Leather Goddesses of Phobos last year. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving aside the sexist implications, or the kinky sex implication. But the very thought that the software public was getting interested in things like boys and girls, is, it's a good sign in the wind. Uh, so uh, uh, maybe you'll have some... Uh, I'm proud to say that I have uh, done a shakedown cruise of the software industry, and uh, I have located a few intelligent, sophisticated people in software. And one of them is in the audience. Now, Stuart Bond from uh, Electronic Arts. Where's Stuart? Hey, there he is right there. He's... Uh, Produce uh, my product, Mind, Movie, Mind Mirror, Electronic Arts, and uh, he's one of the rare and special people in the field. Uh, Tim Mott of Electronic Arts and Brenda Laurel of Activision. By the way, I'm working on a, a software program which I think is very relevant to a discussion about the 60s and the future. It's a, it's a program based upon a book called Neuromancer. How many of you heard of the book Neuromancer of William Gibson? I mean, You've got to think about this. William Gibson, Neuromancer. Uh, it has started a new, a new genre of literature called cyberpunk, if you're ready for that. Uh, Neuromancer is a book, it's a science fiction book. It won all three awards, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the prestigious Philip Dick Award. But it's, um, <laughs> but it, um, it's not science fiction, it's more science fiction. It's the way the world's going to be in ten years from now, like it or not. You can even see it around the corner if you know where to look. A uh, very interesting world, which I'd like to tell you a little about. And very comforting, because it's a world that's post-political, post-partisan politics, a post, uh, almost totally post-religion. It's, a, it's an interesting world that Gibson um, lays out in this book. So uh, we're, uh, we're doing a software program called Neuromancer. Now, uh, the key concept here is cyber, cyberpunk. You're going to hear a lot about cyberpunk. I've got an article in Spin Magazine this uh, week. About cyberpunk. The word cyber is a wonderful word. It's my key to the roaring 20th century. Cyber. Now, I hate the word cybernetics. Cybernetics was developed by Norbert Wiener in 1948, and he said cybernetics is the, is the uh, science of control and feedback of biological uh, human processes or biomechanical control, control, control. But you look up the word cyber, and the word cyber comes from the Greek word pilot. Yeah, and Wiener made it governor or made it steersman, pilot. You see, the the Greeks were sailors and they were out there sending their little craft around the Mediterranean and they couldn't get any, uh, you know, radioed instructions from headquarters. There was no manual or book or Bible to tell them what to do. They had to weave their way through the islands and they had to check the, uh, they didn't have any navigational stuff, poor maps and get their way back. They had to think for themselves. T-F-Y-Q-A, you sure had to do that if you were a Greek pilot. And there's no accident, perhaps. And once those pilots got back on land, they developed the great, great moments of human philosophy, where everyone was running around thinking for him or herself. The philosophies in, in, in Athens were thrilling. Everybody thought they had the right to work out their own philosophy. Uh, is very intuitive. See, the word steersman comes from the Latin word stare, which means to stand, or it means the stuff you stand on. That leads to status, state. Prostitution, constitution, institution, get it. the Roman word so the Romans were not out there, individuals piling their boats, the Romans were in galleys, right, the Romans were building aqueducts, building uh, enormous roads which they' marching all their relief, so to them, a steersman is someone who 's stirring legions down that very different from the um, from the word p- pilot, so if cyber means pilot, see that ties into Heisenberg because Heisenberg basically is basically saying. Everyone, physicists or not, you're, you're kind of crafting, you're navigating your own uh, way through uh, reality. And uh, the, uh, the word cyber suggests that uh, have a model that if enough people become pilots of their lives, we could have what's called a cyber society. Now, remember? Remember? That was the title of my talk, The Cyber Society the Rock-. Made you forget, didn't I? Okay. We made it. Okay. Thought I was rambling, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> cyber society um, is a society obviously made up of individuals (laughs) individuals who think for themselves linked up with other individuals who think for themselves so uh, now what does this mean Uh, according to uh, in Gibson's world of course it's all knowledge uh, people don't work in the near future except in countries where they want to work because it's insulting, humiliating for any human being to be forced economically to perform a behavior that can be done better by a robot or computer. So, oh my God, if we don't work, what about the Protestant ethic? <laughs> what about the workers' paradise of the Soviet Union? Yeah, what happened to that? Uh, if we're not going to work, what are we going to do? Because after all, the aim of life is to work. Freud said it, and my daddy told me that too. Work is the key. Work. If we don't work, what are we going to do? Well, uh, number one, you're going to pilot, navigate. Number two, you're going to um, perform. Number three, you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to work in an information said that, uh, Interestingly enough, you know, there's a lot more fun and a lot more challenge, a lot more to do if you're not a worker. Because if you're a worker, you're just doing what you're told. If you're out there navigating, piloting, charting, uh, figuring out, uh, maneuvering through this new world of information, there's a lot to do. Uh, Another thing about uh, the cyber society that uh, Gibson and his friends uh, portray is a tremendous individual choice. There's no more complaining about the government or about uh, what happened to persecution. In an age of affordable beauty, you can be as beautiful as you want. Now, we know that a lot of people that become pretty fanatic and angry about life are people that don't think they're good-looking. You know, I mean, think about it. You look in the mirror and you don't like what you see there, you're going to be a pain in the ass for the rest of the day if you ask me. <laughs> so uh, Now, see, this is a heavy concept. Remember, the Catholic Church wants everybody dressed the same. And under Maoism, everyone wore the same wonderful psychedelic black <laughs> robe. It was heavy-duty when the well, you can wear a little color. No shit color. Well, you can erase the skirts a little, or you can change it. I mean, I mean, I can wear anything I want to wear. Hey, that's pretty revolutionary, isn't it? Well, if you can do that, then maybe I can have my hair the way I want it to. Yeah, maybe I can put on makeup or not. Even men? <gasps> no, not men. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, if I, can, if I can change the way I look and you know, I dress and all that... You can then cosmetics. Then get surgery, oh, facial surgery. Yeah, why not? Then you get into muscle implants. What do you want to play for the Lakers? Okay, baby. Well, you want two more feet? Hey, boy, give this give this girl two more feet. yes, yeah. Uh, you can literally. There's no excuse anymore. You can literally um, be the person you want to be. Of course, that's the looks is the least important. It's the mind and the ability to to maneuver and manage your your mind. Then the word cyber. Cyber is no longer CY, it's PSY. Get it? Yeah. Because in the future, everyone's got to be a psychologist. you simply got to be a psychologist. You're not a psychologist. You know, you're, you're not able to, um, to you know, keep up with what's going on. Really? Oh, yeah. So, oh, no, race, racial problems. Presumably, they'll be diminished in a world where you can be any color you want for as long as you want to. Go for it. Make a statement. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Politics. That was kind of interesting. Um, See, um, nationalism is finished. Um, The people who run the world, um, talking about the Swiss and the Japanese, of course, simply don't want to have Russia and America bombing each other because Japan owns America. (laughs) And don't destroy all that real estate. So um, Nationalism is pretty... uh, beyond uh, the pale in the next 20, 30 years. Um, there are no police very much because, uh, you see, in a society where these scarcities are all artificial. We know that. Where there's less scarcity, you don't need police that way. The police, the main police, are the brain police, the mind police, the scientific police. Every big, the big, big, multinational combines that control most of the world, they want to control. They have their own police forces that kidnap scientists and you know or kidnapping techniques and so forth. And there's a tremendous police force to protect uh, your data. So you're not protecting territory anymore. You're protecting the uh, the uh, structures and the edifices of data. That are that, uh, that, um, uh, see data. Cyberspace data is a new continent that we have to explore. You know. Anyway, I won't get too far into that. But um, the uh, the people that run things, it's a very pragmatic society, information society, like Andy Warhol. See, Andy Warhol doesn't really care that much about what you do. He's not going to try to order you around. Um, the, the people that run things don't care about drugs or sex or anything like that. See, as long as you've you got to consume. And there's an enormous, enormous underground in Gibson's world. I mean, there's enormous jungles where the people are selling hot DNA chips and, and uh, black market grain uh, implants from Tokyo and... Uh, uh, and the people who run things like that, because uh, see the, most of the most of these um, moralities and crusades come from you know feudal people that uh, that can 't handle the notion of uh, of the information society well what else uh, oh theology there 's a tremendously tremendously fascinating theology in Gibson 's stuff uh, about um, the uh, next level. The next level of higher intelligence or God, or I don't care what you want to call her, um, the uh, the feudal God is a shepherd God. Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. And the Pope of Rome is the big shepherd, and he takes care of his flock. I mean, can you believe that? They're still saying that today. <laughs> and in, in the Industrial Age, of course, uh, God is the, uh, is the Newtonian engineer that runs everything and so forth, but uh, the higher intelligence in an information age, psychological age, is of course, uh, like pure intelligence, it's a very, it's a very, f- it's a very dignified kind of amusing uh, concept of, uh, of higher intelligence that, um, that Gibson portrays. Well, now wait a minute. What else can I possibly do in an hour? I've taken you through the wrong 20th century. I've explained physics, art, jazz. I've explained. Uh, What have I left? Politics, religion, sex? What have I left? (laughs) The the, the 60s? Oh, the 60s were the adolescence of the baby boom. Each decade of the last half of the 20th century just marks a a stage, a phase, a metamorphic uh, interlude in the, uh, oh yeah, in the, the baby boomers. Okay. How many of you in this uh, room between the ages of 25 and 40? Huh? <gasps> See the power? I'm talking power. <laughs> Friends, that's power. 76 million baby boomers. The, um, uh, you totally monopolized American industry when you were in the Eisenhower days. Every time you whimpered the industry gave you what you wanted. Uh, but you've never had any power politically. Uh, it's true that you elected a hippie Uh, President in 1976, Jimmy Carter, howdy doody. That was pretty hot. Jimmy Carter with a sleeping bag and uh, Bob Dylan records and uh, lust in his heart, boy. (laughs) Talking about peace and love, human rights. Hey, give me a break, Jimmy. Smoke another joint. Peace, peace and love. Hey, you invited uh, the Egyptian and the Zionist guy over there. (laughs) That give peace a chance, Menachem. All you need is love, Sadat, huh? Yeah. You got rid of him. Anyway, see, the 60s, I'm, I'm glad you brought the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> the 60s started in the year 67. You remember that. Nothing much was happening in the year 64. Believe me. The 60s started in 67. They peaked in 76 with Carter. Got to say that. And the 60s came to a lurching, thudding stop in the year 1980 when we elected Nancy
0: Reagan. And yes, I'm afraid that that is exactly, exactly where this tape cut off. But uh, in a way, the strange ending to Dr. Leary's talk has given me the sign that I should add one more short soundbite to this podcast. But first, I'd like to uh, say a few things about the talk we just heard. There is uh, a lot I'd like to say about it, but I'll I'll try to keep it to a few generalities. For one thing, uh, I thought it was very touching of Dr. Leary to give Andy Warhol such a nice tribute. And if the dates in Wikipedia are correct, uh, Andy had just died one month before this talk. So when you recall uh, what Timothy said just a few minutes ago about artists uh, being the ones we can always count on to pull humanity through its dark hours, well, uh, it was a nice touch to have Andy Warhol mentioned uh, and memorialized at the same time. Also, uh, he mentioned his dream of the end of the Protestant work ethic. And if that topic uh, is of interest to you, then I highly recommend a little book by Pika Himinen, Titled the hacker ethic and uh, even if you aren't into uh, high tech and what you may think of as hackers I think you'll be surprised at the uh, amazing philosophy contained in that little volume now if you don't come away with anything else after listening to one of Timothy Leary's talks I hope uh, you come away with his mantra think for yourself and question authority now the example I'm about to use may seem uh, really trivial at first blush but my, uh, my point in mentioning it is that even in the tiny little details of life, it can be interesting to think for yourself. And uh, what I'm thinking about is a T-shirt that I saw a person wearing in the gym recently. I couldn't make out the name of the company on the front, but on the back it read, Live Generously. Now that's a nice thought, I, I thought at first. And then I noticed the little TM next to the phrase. Yep, those uh, generously living people who made that shirt also trademarked the phrase, live generously. Which uh, means that for saying it several times just now, I I suppose I owe them some money. So I thought for myself and uh, figured out that those people probably weren't very generous themselves. They just want us to be generous so they can uh, charge us for the idea. I know it's a trivial example, but uh, if you don't think for yourself about these little things that assault our senses a thousand times a day, we will continue to be swept along in this mad commercial sea of advertising and consumption. You know, think for yourself about what things you really need and uh, question all authority. All authority, particularly uh, any authority types you might come across here in the salon, I might add. <laughs> think for yourself and question authority. And since I'm already off track, I also want to bring up Hunter S. Thompson, who Dr. Leary briefly referred to in the talk we just heard. While I'm sure that uh, most of our fellow Saloners are very familiar with Hunter Thompson's work, there may be a few who haven't read him yet. So I want to give you my recommendation on a book of Thompson's that you might like, and that is his collection of short stories titled The Great White Shark Hunt. I won't go on because I could uh, talk about Thompson for a long time, But if you're in the mood for some good laughs, uh, well, just stop by your local library or bookstore and uh, check out a copy. I'm sure the ghost of old Hunter will see that you are well entertained. Now, one of the reasons I'm playing uh, this particular talk of Dr. Leary's today is that I'd like you to think about how excited he was with the state of technology at that particular moment in time. And then think about how much things have changed during the course of the 21 years since he gave this talk. If you get a chance, uh, you might want to go back and reread Gibson's Neuromancer Trilogy. I did uh, just that not too long ago and discovered that we may now be closer to the mad world of Gibson's fiction than we are to the Ozzy and Harriet fantasy of the 50s. And here is one more example, uh, maybe a little strained on my part. But after uh, listening to the short 12-minute soundbite I'm about to play for you, well, I don't know how to describe it, really. Maybe it's just me and uh, my connection to the news that was always playing in the background uh, during those years uh, that draws me to listen to this uh, little clip again, but uh, I guess you'll just have to be the judge of this for yourself. In the introduction uh, to today's talk, we heard Abby Hoffman mention Eldridge Cleaver. And then we heard Timothy Leary mention Cleaver as well. And uh, since most of our fellow saloners already know this history, I'll uh, try to be really brief. And this comes mainly from Wikipedia. Leary went to prison in uh, January of 1970, and in September 1970, he escaped. Uh, Leary claimed his non-violent escape was a humorous prank and left a challenging note for the authorities to find after he was gone. For a fee paid by the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, the weathermen uh, smuggled Leary and his wife Rosemary Woodruff Leary out of the United States and into Algeria where he sought the patronage of Eldridge Cleaver and the remnants of the separatist USA Black Panther Party's government in exile. And uh, after staying with them for a short time, Leary uh, claimed that Cleaver had attempted to hold he and his wife captive or hostage. Uh, But in 1971, uh, Leary fled or he escaped or whatever (laughs) from Cleaver's control and uh, was on the run for a while before eventually returning to prison. Now, on some levels, uh, Tim Leary's life is really an an amazing adventure story, and my recommendation for the first place to begin learning about it is uh, from Dr. Leary's own autobiography, which uh, he titled Flashbacks. And it's uh, really a great read if you haven't done so yet. But what I want to do now is to play a tape for you that I found in the Timothy Leary archive. And for some reason I can't quite identify, it has uh, struck a strange chord in me. As I just mentioned, uh, there was a time in Tim Leary's life when he didn't think so highly of Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, even as late as uh, 1987, when the talk we just heard was given, uh, I don't think he sounded uh, that close to uh, Eldridge. Now, flash forward about eight years to January 7, 1995. And what you are about to hear is a, a private message that Eldridge Cleaver sent to a person he obviously considers a dear friend. Tim Leary. Now, this message is only about 12 minutes long, and in it, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, the fiery former information minister for the Black Panther Party, is uh, attempting to enlist Leary in his plan to help get a woman elected president in the year 2000. And as you listen to this uh, very intimate message, just think about the fact that this very prominent and proud man of color believed a woman would be able to make it to the White House before a black man would. A little over uh, three years after this recording was made, both Tim and Eldridge had uh, died. So one can only wonder about what they would uh, think about the election campaign now taking place uh, here in the States. But uh, right now, here is what Eldridge Cleaver was thinking on January seventh, nineteen 1995.
3: Timothy, this is Eldridge Cleaver. I'm sending you a message to go along with the letter that accompanied uh, this tape. I'm doing this in a public place, so there's a lot of background noise. Um, I'm at the Ex Caravansary, uh, which they now call the Aroma Espresso Roma Cafe. It's on um, the corner of Ashby and College in Berkeley. This is my favorite spot that I come to. Uh, Timothy, I'm so happy to uh, uh, see you and talk to you, and be back in touch with you. And uh, I have a a project which I beg you to uh, participate in with me. Uh, I was thinking of this when I said to you that um, we can now uh, crown our careers, you know. Um, The struggle that uh, we have both been involved in for many years, I definitely was aimed at uh, creating a better world. And uh, we are at a juncture now, both of you, you and myself, we are at a point in our lives now where uh, we don't have a lot of more uh, time, a lot of more things to do. But um, as a result of uh, the way that this country has been going politically, I believe that we are faced with a very major uh, crisis. And uh, I believe that. Uh, you and I are well situated we have been prepared to really uh, do something very powerful and very useful for our country and for the world I've spelled it out in some detail in the letter but it has to do with the aspiration and the dream of uh, America for uh, the equality and the fulfillment of our national destiny and I believe that you and I can launch a movement uh, that will result in the election of a woman to the presidency of the United States in the year 2000, the election of the year 2000 with Bill Clinton stumbling around with his dick hanging out of his pocket fucking up at every turn uh, he is dissipating all of the uh, influence and power uh, on the Democratic Party and to the left of that and we now have looming on the horizon this jerk, Newt Gingrich, and all that he represents and all the garbage. I'm sure that over the next uh, couple of years, till we get to 1996, which is the next presidential election year, we're going to see um, this country being provoked and stirred up in a very unwholesome manner with the very strong possibility that we might end up either in '96 or in the year 2000 with that jerk, Newt Gingrich, running for president or becoming president. I don't think he'll be able to do it in 1996, but I'm sure he's looking at that and he's also looking to 2000. Well, I believe that we can preempt the field by taking the action that I have uh, spelled out in this paper. I don't want you to uh, misunderstand me. I am not talking about you and I... um, uh, having any kind of organizational responsibility. That's why I I said we would Godfather the project. That is, we would launch it and put it out there. And then the women and the type of women that I mentioned uh, on the list that I gave there, these are the people that we can call together. And I ask you to uh, add some names to the list uh, or delete some. But we need a, a core group of women that we can meet with and nail down this project with and get them going on it and send out the call to America that we elect a woman president of the United States in the year 2000 to save this country from this old boy network which I have described uh, very good I believe in the document and I am asking you to join with me in doing this I will come down to LA and then uh, we will have uh, the press release to make out and then the pink paper the position paper to draw up and the rest of it you and i are quite capable of handling it at the press conference we just have to know uh, announce this purpose call the country to this emergency and send out we will publicly state the invitation to these women but we will also send them a special invitation uh, by mail and then uh, we have to decide on all these dates i don't know if there's enough time to do this before the president's State of the Union message. I'm quite willing to do it after. We would have to give it at least two two weeks after he makes that speech because they're going to be chopping that up for uh, eons. And we might have to uh, do it in February. But I would like to get it going as soon as we possibly can. I'll come down to L.A. and huddle with you for a few days. And then uh, we'll call together some aides we've got a group of aides who will help us at the press conference and we'll have to think about how, exactly how we do that and where we do it. I'd like to see it done in a first class manner at some impressive uh, location. It doesn't have to be the Hotel Bonaventure uh, maybe you have a better idea and I'll I'd be willing to do it wherever you say and um, let's please get this thing in motion because uh, I think that When you look at all the problems that confront the United States, the main problem is the bad relationship between men and women, and it really goes back to the Inquisition, uh, when the women were uh, subjected to a holocaust by the Catholic Church, by lawyers and by doctors who were jealous of their power. Um, The doctors and the lawyers framed up the evidence to support the charge of witchcraft, and then the um, Catholic Church put them on trial in the Inquisition tribunals and um, they publicly executed over 100,000 women they confiscated their property and sullied their name Um, these women were high priestesses of, of the goddess religion that goes back before recorded time and these people were respected by the masses they didn't trust these doctors, they didn't trust lawyers and they were very pissed off at the Catholic Church because of all of the atrocious shit that the Catholic Church was doing. And um, the Dominican uh, order uh, were the ones who were like the uh, court clerks in the the Inquisition tribunals and they recorded um, what took place and the words and all that stuff. And then after the tribunals were closed down in 1550, the, the Pope, order the Jesuits to take control of all of the education to suppress all memory of this uh, procedure. And when the Jesuits went out to destroy the records, the Dominican order wouldn't give them uh, their files because they, they didn't like the Jesuits for good reason. They didn't trust them. They knew about a lot of dirty shit that the Jesuits have been doing. And so they would not give them their uh, records of the tribunal. And uh, you may have heard of uh, this theologian by the name of Matthew Fox who's been censored and silenced by the Vatican a couple of times. He's a member of the Dominican Order. He's recently resigned because of all of the repression that's taking place in the church. And when you hear the Pope continually repeating that women cannot be ordained as ministers, it is because he fears uh, what will happen if women are ever empowered again and to re- restore their respect and their stature that uh, there would be a vital threat to the male supremacy throne of the Pope and you know men established masculine supremacy over women, masculine superiority I should say, through brute force you see the image of the caveman dragging the woman by her hair into the cave, this kind of shit, but women didn't believe in that and a lot of men didn't believe in that but the Catholic Church took the initiative to establish a theology, an ideology of masculine supremacy preaching God the Father and the uh, male Messiah Jesus and this totally obliterates the logical necessity that our Creator must be both male and female otherwise uh, he could not have done what I don't like to say he about God because God is not a he or she, God is an us, God is not some fucking human being running around here, an old man on the clouds with a beard, that's bullshit, and the world needs to be liberated from this, and I believe that when we take this step and deal with the gender healing by uh, supporting these women, I think it'll go a long ways to help breaking up this old boy network and put a woman's heart in our politics, so that we can stop fucking over the children, destroying the educational system and playing these games that boys play with uh, war toys and shit we have an opportunity we have a great challenge the United States has a uh, responsibility to straighten this fucking world up and nail it down and get this shit out of the way and get these punks out of the way and keep running around <laughs> stirring up the water we're inundated by bullshit right now, Timothy and. You and I don't have to try to control this organization. We only need to be members if the women invite us to be. I'm not talking about setting up an all-women's organization, but I think that uh, the kind of women that I have named here, the movers and the shakers, need to be at the heart of it, at the core of it. And if they want us on the board of directors, they can invite us. We can talk to them. But I'm not worried about that. I want them to pull together together. A large uh, central committee or board of directors, whatever they want to call it, that would be uh, staffed with qualified people who can then draw up their own documents and so forth, their procedures, and um, then uh, begin the work now of establishing uh, offices in every city of the United States and begin the process. Of propagandizing for the election of a woman in the year two thousand which woman i don't know but there are a lot of qualified women out there and uh, we might take newt gingrich's uh, uh... vocabulary and call for the election of a bitch because i think uh, the woman he called a bitch is quite capable of doing the job but we'll leave those details to the shaking out process It's not for you and i to determine who this woman will be What you and I can do, and it will be to our credit, it will be a great uh, credit to the United States because we both have a lot of uh, influence and respect upon millions and millions of people in the United States. And we put out the initial call to take this action, and then we will be in a supporting role from then on. We will support these women, we can brainstorm, and I'm sure that you will have a billion ideas about how to uh, put this out there and get it in circulation and we have five years to make it work we can do it Timothy let's do it please uh, consider what I am saying here and then after you read this stuff let me know give me some dates when we can sit down and talk and I'll come down there and we'll get this shit straight and we will change history as we have done considerably already but this time we will do a monumental task that no one is really talking about right now. And let's be the first ones to put this out there on the practical table and let's make it happen. All right, Tennessee. Hope you received this. I'm going to put it in the mail right now. And really looking forward to you uh, digesting this and responding. God bless you, brother. Love you. All right. Talk to you later.
0: Well, what can I say after that? Maybe you have to have uh, lived through the days when Leary and Cleaver were in the news every night in order to get the full impact of this uh, interesting message from the grave. Actually, uh, I've been hesitating to play this little historical tidbit during the current U.S. election cycle because I most certainly don't want to do anything to give the impression that I am in any way supporting the current woman candidate for president. I most definitely do not support the idea of having yet another Bush or Clinton family member continue to control the White House, as they have already done now for almost 30 years. As you know, uh, I do my best to keep politics out of this podcast, and that will continue to be my goal. But uh, I want to make it very clear that, uh, yes, this old cynic, the guy who voted for Leonard Peltier in 2004, has actually been impressed by what Barack Obama is doing, particularly among the most important and yet uh, the least represented generations, those uh, 35 years old and under. These are the people who are going to have to live with the consequences of continuing on the obviously irrational path that the U.S. has been on these past seven years, thanks in no small measure to our own inbred version of Caligula going ever more insane right before our eyes. Do I agree with everything Obama says? Of course not, and I doubt if many of his supporters do either. But when I was in college, I heard Kennedy give his inaugural address and... On the radio, I also heard Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech. And I can still remember uh, many of the emotions that swept through me on those rare occasions. Now, maybe I'm just morphing from a hardened cynic into a sentimental old man, but uh, even if that's the case, I'm (laughs) I'm sure it'll seem like an improvement to my closest associates. But I have to tell you, uh, particularly our fellow Saloners who don't live in the U.S., that there is something different about the spirit that this young, half-black, half-white politician is invoking in his audiences. While Mrs. Clinton struggles to get 800 people to attend her big rallies, Obama packs uh, 18,000 more into auditoriums and turns more away at the door. I have no idea of what this is all about or where it's leading, But I can tell you from my own experience that uh, there's an energy coming alive today that I I hope is going to make the 60s look boring. So, uh, as I think uh, the captain of the Enterprise said, uh, words to the effect of, make it so. Okay, enough. Sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) But it sure felt good to get it off my chest. Uh, So there you have it. Lorenzo the Cynic is voting for Obama. Even if I have to write in his name on my ballot this November hopefully this will be my last political outburst, uh, at least for a long time. Now let's close with uh, some feedback from a few of our fellow Saloners. And uh, I'm trying to pick a couple of comments that represent the thoughts of uh, several others as well. This is from Jeff M., who writes... I stumbled upon the dopecast about four months ago, and uh, luckily about two months ago, I came across, while listening to KMO on one of the early episodes of Psychonautica, your psychedelic salon. At first, I was completely overwhelmed with all of the new information that I had come into contact with, and I had no clue where to go first. I had no idea that such a community even existed. I must admit that living in a predominantly white middle class area can be absolutely horrifying at times, not to mention pretty lonely. However, after realizing that I am by no means alone in my worldviews and appreciation of these beautiful medicines, my life has become a lot more tolerable and much more enjoyable. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for bringing up the fact that while the psychedelic community is huge on a worldwide basis. The problem is that uh, a good many of us feel like we're the last sane person on the planet. And, uh, in fact, this is the main reason I do these podcasts. You see, until uh, January of 1999, I was living in almost the same circumstances as you are today. I had one friend my age who also used psychedelics and smoked a little grass, but we didn't have any contact with others of like mind, primarily, uh, I guess, because of where we were living. And then I went to uh, an antheobotany seminar in Palenque, Mexico. And within six months, I'd quit my job and moved to Southern California, where I now find myself surrounded by like-minded people. But not everybody can do what I did. At the time, uh, my youngest child had already finished college. I was living alone and had no strings attached. You know, uh, it was the perfect time for me to uh, make a radical change in my life. In fact, uh, such opportunities hardly ever happen to most people. So I figured that uh, the next best thing to relocating physically is that a bunch of us could relocate in cyberspace uh, for an hour or so each week and recharge through uh, what I fantasize as uh, eventually a 24 by 7 group mind of some kind. And we may be approaching the time when, uh, no matter when you are listening to one of these podcasts, there will be uh, several other people listening to the Psychedelic Salon also. I have no way of uh, monitoring the mirror sites and radio stations that are rebroadcasting these podcasts, but uh, on our own two servers, I, I know that there's never a minute of the day that several people aren't downloading copies of the Salon. So the chances are that uh, no matter when you are with us here in the Psychedelic Salon, that there are some of your fellow Saloners here with you. Now, uh, getting back to reality, <laughs> here is what else Jess had to say. Your fantastic energy and incredibly informative work has deeply inspired me beyond words. I am so grateful that people like yourself have gone to the lengths that you have to provide all of this information for free. Alas, I am a student and have little to no income whatsoever, but I would like you to know that if you keep doing what you are doing into the following years, I will definitely be sending donations your way. I'm sure you get emails like this all of the time, but I really felt it just necessary to send something your way. Thanks for the kind words, Jeff, and uh, I do admit to getting a lot of messages from students and people of all ages who have practically no disposable income, and yet they feel bad about not being able to make a donation to the salon. First of all, let me say that I've never had to ask for donations to uh, meet our expenses because they just seem to always arrive at the right moment. It's really amazing that uh, some weeks there won't be a donation and then uh, several come in all at one time. And so I don't have any concerns about uh, keeping these podcasts going, and you shouldn't worry about it either. Believe me, uh, I know what it's like to be strapped for cash, and if you aren't careful, it can really wear you down. So I think I'm speaking for all of the people who have made financial donations to the salon and saying that one of the reasons they have uh, made these donations is to help get these podcasts out to people who couldn't afford to go to uh, mind states or to Burning Man or a conference or someplace like that. So uh, this is also their way and my way of uh, sharing some of the gifts that uh, life has given us. Your turn is going to come, and uh, the day will arrive when you too can pass it forward. Well, I had not planned for this program to go on so long, so I'll just uh, read part of one more message I received recently. It's uh, from our friend Dharma Bilt, who says, among other things, Hi, Lorenzo. I'm glad that you're feeling better. And by the way, uh, thank you to all of you who have also passed that thought along. And, yes, I'm feeling great. Dharma Bilt goes on, I've been listening to your latest, McKenna slash Palomary, and thoroughly enjoy both. Notice that I didn't use the past tense, as I tend to listen to these a few times, always catching something on each play. It definitely helps the day go by as I plug away in a corporate environment. I'm a freelancer, though. I trade income security and health benefits for freedom. It's a struggle, but I haven't been able to find the right thing quite yet, so this is a reasonable solution. Well, as I just said a few minutes ago... uh, I was 56 years old before I finally broke free of the corporate world, uh, so let's uh, hope that you won't have to wait so long. (laughs) Dharma built goes on. I'm also trying to see my way clear to take a trip to Amazonian Peru for shamanic work with various sacred medicines. I've got some experience, but uh, not in that context or with the specific plants that this area is known for. I know and respect the reasoning that you don't make a recommendation or give advice in this regard. But perhaps you could give me a general indication. I would love to go to Luis Eduardo Lunas, uh, but it's a little too pricey for me. If you opt not to respond, I completely understand and respect your position. Yeah, this is uh, this is really a tough situation. First of all, uh, let me mention what I see as the light at the end of the tunnel. In my own case, it took me about 10 years of searching before making a connection with a practicing and reputable Iowa Scarrow. And uh, for nine years now, I've been a member of a small group who journeys together several times a year, and they are actually the light at the end of your search, your group, the one you finally end up feeling at home with and uh, participating with on a regular basis. They will eventually materialize, I'm sure of that. Now, uh, for what small amount of practical advice I can give you, uh, besides a warning to beware of people who claim to be Iowa scarrows, but who have few credentials to uh, back up their claims, I found my group uh, after years of interacting with people I met at various conferences. And as I said, I was lucky because I had a high-paying job and the leisure time to afford to go to those conferences. So what do you do if you're poor? Uh, It's hard to say because poor is different for different people. But the one thing that I believe will give you the best chance of making the connections you're looking for is to uh, somehow, some way, scrape up the money and time to attend one of Alan Shoemaker's shamanism conferences in Iquitos, Peru. And I'll try to remember to put up a link to uh, those conferences uh, along with the program notes to this podcast. And if you decide to go, it would, uh, it would be really cool of you to make your reservation through my friend and fellow podcaster, KMO, who gets a little commission uh, from Alan for uh, kind of watching out for our fellow Saloners down there at the conference. Uh, you know, I think these conferences are in July, but uh, for sure, this would be the first place I would go right now if I were you. Well, I guess uh, that had better be it for today. And as always, I want to close by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, uh, you can click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And that's uh, also where you're going to find the program notes for these podcasts.